And as we close the year and embrace 2016, my question and my message, will it be comfort or growth? One thing is for sure, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And if you're going to grow, you're going to be very uncomfortable. So the choice is always ours. God has designed all of our lives so that risk is intimately connected with the development of faith and partnering with God. Risk is intimately connected with the whole idea of growth. And there's something inside all of us that longs to be involved in an appropriate risk-taking adventure with God. Not a foolish one, but an appropriate one. But I think over time that sense of adventure sometimes gets eroded because of criticism, failure, obstacles, limitations, sin, resistance from people, and maybe just the pressure of everyday life and obligations. So once in a while, and at the close of this year, is a good time to step back and ask ourselves this question, what's God calling me to do I could not do by myself? Because God will never ask you to do anything you can do alone. You don't need any faith to do that. And every time He asks you to do something, it'll scare your britches off. Because in the natural, it looks hopeless. But with His power, it can become a miracle. So I'm going to Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He sent the multitudes away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. When evening had come, He was alone there. But the boat was now out in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind had become contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Stop being afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. <laughs> I bet Peter would like to have that back. So he said, come. And notice he didn't tell Peter how to do it. He didn't tell him, well, you're going to give me a wave runner? Am I going to ride Shamu? What? What What do you mean, come? I've got to have a little more information. And God, because of faith, usually it just says, well, you figure it out. I'm going to be with you, so come. And uh, sometimes we, we don't like that. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. But when he began to see the wind boisterous, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You don't have to pray a long prayer sometimes. You know, you pray a good prayer when you're scared. And it's quite short. I wouldn't go to lunch with some of you. You, you pray, your wife will go through menopause before you get through praying. And here, Lord, save me. Pretty right to the point. I bet that's an anointed prayer too. At two or three o'clock in the morning in a storm in the dark, come on. Try to get yourself in these stories and you get a little bit of life out of it. So he said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him 
and said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So this is a story about calling, risk, fear, faith, and growth that ends up in worship. So try to imagine how bad it must have been when Jesus comes to them between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. Imagine how strong the wind is, how high the waves are, and they're still in the water after all this time. They're cold, they're wet, they're exhausted, they're terrified, 3 o'clock in the morning. Those are the conditions under which Peter's going to get out of the boat. I think it'd be kind of hard to get out of the boat if it was daylight and the water was flat as glass. And Jesus said, come. So imagine trying to do it in the dark, in a storm, and you're terrified already. Those are the conditions under which Peter is going to take the risk, trust Jesus, and get out of the boat. And the question is, does he fail? Before I answer that, why don't we do a mass confession of failure? Let me read a short list and see if you've ever failed in your life. Ever failed a test? Ever been cut from a team? Ever get turned down for a job or a promotion? Were you ever impatient with a three-year-old? Ever criticized someone inappropriately? Ever discovered that criticism is your spiritual gift? ever experienced moral, athletic, academic, social, financial, vocational failure of any kind, then please raise your hand. Yeah, that should be everybody warm and breathing in here. And confession must be followed by absolution. So tell your neighbor or friend, I absolve you of your failure. Go ahead. They need it. That's good. Emma Bombeck. I love this humorist. She said, you can live on bland food in order to avoid an ulcer, drink no tea or coffee or other stimulants in the name of health, go to bed early, stay away from nightlife, avoid all controversial subjects so as never to be offensive, mind your own business, avoid involvement in other people's problems, spend money only on necessities and save all you can, but you can still break your neck in a bathtub and it would serve you right. Yeah, get a life. And I'll tell you something, as followers of Jesus and those who are involved with church ministry, we're going to have to come to grips with this failure deal because there is simply no way to move forward in the Christian life or in life in general without willingness to risk failure. And the question is not, will I fail? The question is, when I fail, will I learn, will I grow, and refuse to be defeated by it? See, God intends for your life to be about more than failure avoidance. And this is what happens in churches, especially when people get hurt or when something doesn't go well. They retreat back into failure avoidance mode. Well, I'm not ever going to get married again. Well, I'm not ever going to uh, go into that relationship again. Or, well, I'm not ever going to uh, try to run a business again. Or, I'm not ever going to do that again totally wrong statement to make. It's called failure avoidance mode. You can't win on defense. You've got to win on offense. And, and one of the big problems I have with the Big Ten is that they play more for defense than offense. But you've got to throw caution to the wind to win a game. Yeah. Cowboys, are you listening? <laughs> I don't want to hear anything from you Redskins fan. That, that game last night was given to you. 
That Philadelphia quarterback went down on a knee, lost his mind, and ran out the clock. They could have kicked the field goal and won the game. So don't be bragging with your shirt. You, that was a free gift. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. I feel better. What? <laughs> Once a person, a church, a team, or a business goes into failure avoidance, you start to die. You know, the president of Coca-Cola once said, and I'm quoting, the moment you let avoiding failure become your motivator, you're going down the path of inactivity. You can only stumble if you're moving. If you don't have a few failures, you're not taking enough chances. Nobody can be right all the time, and the big companies didn't get big by playing safe. And folks, neither will you. I preached a message a year ago called Safety Last. And we live in a church culture of safety first. And God never calls you to safety first. He will, I said, scare your bridges off. No. There's no, any, you read this Bible and God didn't ask anybody to do anything safe. Yeah, well, it's nice to sit there with your hair corfured and your makeup and your nice clothes from Christmas and it's safe. This is safe. But God, when He speaks to you, is going to ask you to do something terribly not safe. And the secret, it seems, is to cheerfully embrace your failure, part of life, and to count on your coming successes to outweigh them. Take a chance. Risk failure. Change something that needs changing. Because the boat, it's safe. And the boat, it's comfortable. Got a flat screen TV in the boat. The boat's secure. But the water, it's rough. The waves are high. The wind is strong. There's a storm out there. We're the only nation that coined the phrase, couch potato. Yeah, we think we can lose weight by watching an exercise program, eating nachos on a couch. (laughs) The number one selling chair in America is still the lazy boy, not the risky boy. Not the worker boy, no, the lazy boy. And if you get out of the boat, whatever your boat happens to be, you're going to find out there's a real good chance you might sink sometimes. But if you never get out of the boat, there is a guaranteed ironclad certainty you will never walk on the water. Because if you want to walk on the water, you got to get out of the boat. And there's something inside every one of us that says life is to be about something more than sitting in a boat. Something that wants to experience the power of God enabling me to do what I could never do by myself. And Jesus comes to the disciples and you notice they're all terrified. They're all afraid. And Jesus says, stop being afraid. You can trust me. You can safely put your life in my hands. Fear management is an essential part of dealing with risk and failure in the growth of your faith. So Jesus said, get out of the boat. And Peter goes over the side and lets go of the boat. And for a while, old Pete's walking on the water, sustained by the power of God. And I can imagine Jesus with rain and waves splashing all over him, hair matted with water, a big grin on his face because somebody trusted him enough to risk getting out of the boat on his word, his command, come. And then Peter did what a lot of us do. He took his eyes off Jesus. He starts looking around saying, what was I thinking? 
I took physics. I, I know a human body can't stand on top of a water molecule. What was I thinking? There's a storm out here. It's not easy. It's not safe. Hey, this is difficult. The waves are high. I'm encountering opposition. And he worries and begins to sink. You know why the will of God is the most dangerous place in the world? I know you thought I was going to say safest. The will of God is the most dangerous place in the world simply because God doesn't fear anyone or anything. And He doesn't mind putting you there because He's not afraid. To live outside God's will puts you in danger. To live inside God's will makes you dangerous. And that's where most of us don't want to go. And the question this morning is, is this a story of failure? Well, failure is not so much the event, what happened, as the judgment you make about the event. Someone asked Winston Churchill, what prepared you to lead England against Hitler the most? And Winston Churchill said, when I was in elementary school, I had to repeat a year of schooling. And the journalist said, you mean you failed a whole year of school? Churchill said, I never failed anything in my life. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. <laughs> I love that. And I mean, was Churchill a failure? I don't think so. So here's the question. Did Peter fail? Well, I guess in a, in a small sense he did. He took his eyes off Jesus. His faith was a bit small. He began to sink. But let's take time out for a moment while we're focused on Peter getting wet after he walked on the water and we watched. Did you remember there are 11 bigger failures sitting in church in the boat? Oh, yeah. They were doing their blog and tweets in the warmth and safety of the boat. They failed quietly. They failed privately. Their failure was a safe failure. It went unnoticed, unobserved, uncommented on, uncriticized, because they weren't out on the water. Only Peter knew the pain of public failure. Ah, but only Peter knew two other things. Only Peter knew the glory of what it was to walk on the water. <laughs> sustained by the power of God, and I don't think he ever forgot that. That looked pretty good on his resume. Walked on the water. That ain't bad. And number two, only Peter knew what it was to be lifted up by Jesus when he desperately needed his help. Peter knew in a way the others did not know that if he sank, Jesus would be there, wholly adequate to save. And he had a confidence that went down to the marrow of his bones about Jesus, the other disciples did not have, could not have, because they never got out of the boat. So you can stay in church safe, and you can say Jehovah Jireh, but you've never tithed, you've never been down to your last bit of money, you've never been a giver, you've never seen God come through miraculous. So to you, it's just a doctrine, but it's an experience to others who have lived it. He is Jehovah Jireh. If you've never been sick, you can never know Him as healer. You can never know Him as deliverer if you've never been under attack, or you've been in a lawsuit, or you've been involved in, in a messy divorce, or you've been involved in a business gone bad. You, you can't know that. You can just mutter the doctrine in church or the words in a song, but to you it's not real because you've never been there. And I think a whole lot of Christians are still on the bench and never played the game. So they know the song and they know the words, but they don't know the experience because they've never done it. They never get out of the boat. So where's God asking you to get out of the boat? 
You know, let me give you some questions to reflect on when it comes to getting out of the boat. Number one, how do you tend to deal with failure when you do fail? Sometimes folks want to hide. They feel ashamed. They drop out of church. Some feel challenged to snap back and say, I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to whip this no matter what. Some become angry when they fail. How about you? Second, how well do you discern the right risks to take? Because there are good risks and there are some stupid risks. And this story is not about risk-taking just for risk's sake. No, no, no. It's a risk in a response to a call from Jesus. And the world's full of people who take risks, but they're dumb risk. This is from the Los Angeles Times, July 2nd, 1982. Larry Waters, who had always dreamed of flying, got an idea while sitting outdoors in his extremely comfortable Sears lawn chair. He purchased 45 weather balloons from an Army-Navy surplus store. He tied them to his lawn chair, dubbed the Inspiration One, and he filled the four-foot diameter balloons with helium. Then he strapped himself into his lawn chair with sandwiches, a six-pack of Miller Lite, and a pellet gun. Larry's plan was to sever the anchor and lazily float up to about 30 feet over his backyard where he'd enjoy a few hours of flight before coming back down. He figured he'd pop a few beers, then pop a few of the 45 balloons when it was time to descend and gradually lose altitude. But things didn't work out quite like Larry planned. When his girlfriend cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, Larry did not float lazily up to 30 feet. Instead, he streaked into the Los Angeles sky as if shot from a cannon, pulled from 45 balloons holding 33 cubic feet of helium each. He didn't level off at 30 feet or 100 feet or 1,000 feet. No, oh, smart Larry leveled off at 16,000 feet. And at that height, he figured he could not risk shooting any balloon lest he unbalance the load and really get himself in trouble. So for hours, he stayed there drifting with his beer and sandwiches for hours considering his options. At one point, he crossed the primary approach corridor of the Los Angeles International Airport. Delta TWA pilots radioed in these incredulous reports about this strange sight. As it grew dark, eventually Larry got the nerve to shoot a few balloons and slowly began to descend through the night sky. The hanging tethers under his lawn chair tangled and caught in a power line, blacking out a Long Beach, California neighborhood for over 20 minutes. Larry was able to climb to safety where he was arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter asked Larry why he had done it. Larry replied, a man can't just sit around. That's not a good reason to get out of the boat. Here's, here's the, this is the actual interview with Larry. My soul were ripped for tops and power lines. And I thought to myself, my, my God, this is it. You know, please God, you know, don't let me get fried. My God, this is it. And he said he would never do that again. Not a good reason to get out of the boat. So a real important issue when it comes to risk-taking is discernment, wisdom, good judgment. So how do you do it discerning risk wisely? Do you err playing it too safe? Do you err taking too many foolish risks? 
Do you use any people to help you out? Here's three helpful questions in the discernment process. Are you clear on your giftedness? Where has God gifted you? Secondly, are you clear on your limitations? You're not strong in every area. No one is. So, you soar with your strength, but you better get counsel in your weakness from those who are strong in that area. And number three, do you have wise friends you regularly turn to? I think for every one of us, the danger of missing our calling because we're driven to be famous or rich or important is huge. Be willing to let go of your limitation. Who helps you in the discernment of God's calling? How many times have we heard people say, well, I met this guy in church and, you know, seemed friendly enough, and we loaned—this is a real quote—and we loaned him $15,000 for one of these fireworks stands, and we were going to split the profit, and he didn't pay me back. Can you fix it? Well, how can I fix it? Yeah. You, did you ask anybody about who you loan money to? We could have given you a very good report. This, this was an unstable, unfaithful person. You shouldn't loan him a dime unless you're prepared to lose it. And so, please, people around here in leadership know things about people around here. And so, sometimes you're hooking up with somebody in your innocence that you don't know anything about. So, even as the senior leader, I ask the board and other leaders in here their opinion about different people if we're preparing to hire somebody or bring somebody on in a leader. Is there something I don't know? Is there something I fail to see? Because I don't know what goes on in a few thousand people's lives. So, what am I trying to do? Avoid big mistake, right? In the multitude of counsel, there's safety. Who do you talk to? Not your broke uncle. You know, talk to somebody that has some proven achievement, not somebody that has an opinion. Then you're going to get pretty good counsel. Number three, am I ruthlessly saying yes when God calls me in some area in my life? Peter gets this one right. Peter said, I mean, Jesus said, come. Peter goes over the side. And very often, that step that puts the divine power of God into action is our step of risky obedience as God's children. You know, a lot of times we want the guarantee first that it's going to be okay, but very rarely does God give the guarantee first, because growth comes when people are willing to take a step without the guarantee. That's when growth comes. That's predicated on trust. I trust you, Lord. So here goes. God says, bring all the tithes into the store. Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure I can pay my bills or make it. I will rebuke the devourer. I will. God makes a promise. Well, I don't know. I mean, and we draw back. It goes on all the time. You'll trust Him to save you from hell, but you won't trust Him to provide for you financially. I, I find that striking. You won't grow unless you're willing to say, I'm going to obey God come hell or high water, and no matter what I see, if He says I'm going to have a baby and I'm 100 years old and my mama is 90, we're going to get furniture for a nursery. That's it. We're going to get some pampers and paint the room pink or blue or whatever it is and get some little mobiles because the baby's coming. May not look good right now, but it's coming. And it didn't look good, but something happened in that tent when God reverse the aging of Sarah and Abraham, and they both laughed 
and they got a baby named Isaac, which means laughter. Laugh plus laugh equals laughter. Some of you ain't laughed in a long time. Okay. <laughs> well, God did a miracle, didn't He? I mean, quite obviously He did. But God says, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. If I have to back up the sea ten deg- I mean, back up the sun 10 degrees, or if I have to feed you with ravens, or if I have to open the Red Sea, or open the Jordan River, or feed you with manna, you've got to come to the place where if God said He would do it, you've got to quit trying to figure out how. He will do it. That's my confidence. I don't know how. I don't worry about how. He said He will. I'll take care of you. And so I'm going to count on that. Fourth question to ask, is my primary focus on God or the storm. For Peter, while his focus was on Jesus, he was doing great. But when he saw the wind or the circumstances around you, he began to sink. So it's possible to choose my focus. People in leadership, particularly church ministry, must be able to exude an authentic sense of hope and optimism. They have to, because when you're around somebody who's breathing out hope and optimism, it leads to confidence and action. And when you're around somebody breathing out despair and fear, it leads to paralysis and death. That's important. What's the culture like in your church or in your area of ministry in the church or in your office or your occupation, Mr. Businessman or woman? Are you in a hope-filled, hopeful culture or are you in a hope-challenged culture? If you're a leader, you, you give up the right to think about yourself. You've got to be hopeful. If I'm a father in a family and we're facing a crisis, I'm the guy that's got to stand up and give security to the family with hope-filled faith words. Not, my God, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we'll make it. I've never said that in my life. I've made a lot of mistakes, but I never made that one, ever. If you're an older man in here and suddenly the company downsizes to get rid of high income and you're up on the scale of age, the natural reaction is to say, I'm too old to hire. Now what am I going to do? Your response as a believer in the kingdom of God should say, I'm a giver and I've honored you in my living, therefore God will take care of me. God will open a door. If it's the first time that door's ever been opened, He will open that door and deliver me. He will give me houses I didn't build, wells I didn't dig, and vineyards I didn't plant. He will give me what I didn't work for. He promised. It's in His Word. How is up to Him. Now, that's how you bring hope to a culture where the wife is afraid, the children, how are we going to make it? Will we lose the house? You see what I'm saying? And boy, in churches, when, when 08 hit and the country of America and nations went down and giving stopped 40%, we had just moved in this church. And boy, we weren't sure whether we would make it or not. 350 churches went into foreclosure. I never said ooh. Y'all said ooh. I didn't say ooh. I said it's going to be all right. That which I've begun in you, I'll perform it to the day of Jesus. Jesus didn't lead us here to abandon us. We didn't take a foolish step of obedience. It was risk. We claimed and we had prayer meetings here. We called special prayer meetings, and we claimed what God said in His Word, that He is Jehovah Jireh, that He would deliver. We rebuked the devourer, and we stood on God's promise, and God, well, we're here. Hello. I didn't, I didn't say, I don't know what we're going to do. Well, what am I going to do if God doesn't heal me? Well, you're going to die. And you'll be with Jesus, healthy and well. So shut up. Quit complaining. Fight until you die. So that's my attitude. It ain't over till it's over. 
And it's not over. So would you quit wringing your hands and start believing in faith? Build a culture of hope. Well, my parents don't have much money, and I don't know if I can afford to go to college. All right, that's the natural picture. But how about the kingdom of God? As a young man, maybe you're on an allowance. Maybe you've got a part-time job. Tithe it. Believe God. Honor God. Serve. Be where you are. And God promised if He has to raise up somebody who hears about the situation, or you qualify for some scholarship. And I know when you say scholarship, everybody thinks, oh, you've got to have a high IQ. Half the scholarships are never claimed because nobody asked for them. You can write letters in your university and apply for 124 of them, and nobody ever claims them. And you get it. That's happened. We read an article in one of the magazines, I think People Magazine, a girl who wrote over a thousand letters for the different scholarships in her college, and she ended up getting full paid tuition. I had Chrissy when she first went to college. Hey, try some of those scholarships. She got them. Writing letters. How much is a postage stamp worth to some of you? See, that's hope-filled, not hopeless. You have no idea the opportunity around you. If you hang around a bunch of mumbling people saying, well, you, who, you, you didn't make high enough grades, you probably won't get into college. Well, you don't, you're not going to get anything. You're not even going to get a date if you don't ask. And if you got that attitude, I hope you don't get a date with one of our girls. I don't want her to marry you. I want her to marry somebody that's got a little confidence and hope. And our God will supply all of our needs, and we're going to make a difference in the world. Get you a man, not a zipper. <laughs> Something coming on me up here. I don't know what it is. <laughs> when hope starts to die, fruitfulness and creativity start to die. Biblical hope never depends on circumstances. It depends on the way you view and respond to your circumstances. I mean, on a purely human level, don't we know two different people who can look at the same situation and come, up, come apart with totally diametrically opposite conclusions? It's a true. You know, Saul looked at the giant and said, he's too big to kill. David looked at Goliath and said, my God, he's too big to miss. They, or it's, it's like a cat and a dog. You know, a dog looks at its owner and says, you feed me, pet me, shelter me, you care for me, you must be God. Cat looks at the owner and says, you feed me, pet me, shelter me, care for me, I must be God. <laughs> and there are cat people and dog people in life. Moses sends the 12 spies to view the promised land. They all see the same land, the same enemies, the same opportunities. But ten of them come back with a negative report. We be not able. We are grasshoppers. And you've got people in your church or your business, on a team, in the government, just like that. Joshua and Caleb, they saw the same thing. They said, we should go up at once and take possession of the land, for we are well able. We are well able is the classic statement of water-walking people. With God's help, we are well able. Both groups saw exactly the same thing. One group had faith in God that led to hope and action. The other did not. And question five, where is fear holding you back as we roll into 2016? Fear is a killer. And the most often quoted verse in the Bible, fear not. Fear is the number one barrier in Scripture that keeps people from doing what God calls them to do. And maybe it's something God's calling you to do. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's confronting someone. Maybe it's taking a risk as a church. Maybe it's buying a home. Maybe it's beginning to learn generosity in your church and with your God. But fear's kept you from doing it. Not wisdom, not prudence, just 
plain old fear. Everybody faces fear. And in Scripture, the decision to follow Jesus means you experience fear over and over again if you keep moving. Because every time you grow, you have to enter new territory, and you've never been there before. So every time you enter new territory, you're going to experience fear. To grow means I've got to face fear. So do you value growth enough to be willing to be afraid? Or is your fear avoidance so high you're willing to pay the price of stagnation? Because growth involves risk, and risk means fear always. Choice is simple. Face my fear or avoid my fear. Become passive and stagnant. I close with this thought. I took my daughters when they were little girls, little, little, little girls, to see a Walt Disney movie called Snow White. And sitting there, I realized as a dad, this is a horrible model for my girls. Here's a woman hiding from her stepmother because she feels hopeless and afraid. She takes a job doing menial labor for seven short cranky guys because she thinks she can't find more fulfilling work. And she sits around passive, waiting to get rescued, singing that dumb song, Someday my prince will come. A life of fear, passivity, and hiding. I'd have slapped a couple of those sisters in that. I'd put a high heel right in the mouth of one of them. I, I, I can't handle that. And I wanted my girls to know, if you are ever in that situation, you confront that old bag stepmother face to face. You tell her to come to grips with the aging process and that you have no intention of being the fall guy because of her neurotic insecurities about her fading sexual attractiveness. So find a good therapist, mom. Tell the short guys to get a life. If they can't handle the basic challenges of personal hygiene and housekeeping, They'll have to find another codependent to enable their domestic passivity. And stop waiting for some prince to come rescue you. Build deep relationships, find meaningful work, serve the poor. And when it's time to choose a prince, let daddy decide. Yeah. That's it, boy. I'm telling you, that's, that's a fact. So, I hope you'll look at that from a spiritual standpoint, because that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Seven short cranky guys and one old bag stepmother, and she's passive. Jim Hilton, who was a, a pastor with, ja uh, with James Robinson and the team up in Dallas for many years when I worked with James, used to say that if you're afraid to confront or fight, you'll go short of the benefits Jesus purchased for you. And he says, fear kept Israel in the wilderness 40 years. Not the enemy. Fear of fighting. Fear that I might get hurt kept them paralyzed there. So a life of following Jesus means fear never goes away. So I have to decide whether my ultimate value is going to be comfort or growth for the new year. So the question we close with, where is Jesus asking you to get out of your boat? Because when you do, the power of God's kingdom is set in motion in a way that not only changes your life, it changes the world. And Jesus is still looking for somebody to get out of the boat. And I don't know what that means for you, but I do know two things. Number one, when and if you fail, Jesus' right hand still wholly is adequate to save. Though the righteous man falls seven times, the Lord will uphold him. 
there is no mistake you can make that puts you outside of the grace, the strength, and sufficiency of Jesus' right hand. And number two, the other thing I know is every once in a while, you get to walk on the water. But if you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the boat. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.